Hello and welcome to the Geeky Medics podcast. My name is Josh Chambers and this podcast selfishly gives me an excellent excuse to interview interesting doctors and healthcare professionals from a range of backgrounds, drilling down to why they chose the speciality they're in and what it's really like to do the job. In this episode, we're concentrating on something slightly different, medical law. I hope you enjoy Dr. Peter Ferrishreiber, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, it's, it's a real pleasure to have you with us, and I think listeners will soon realise what a wide-reaching and varied career you've had, not only in medicine, um, but in pharmacology and now in law. I wonder, before we start, if you could give us a brief overview, really, of your career, and then we'll dive into the details. Well, thanks, thanks very much, Josh. Um, I've had a slightly eccentric career. I've been a scientist and a medic. Um, I trained very conventionally at King's College Hospital. Uh, I did postgraduate work in intensive care and anaesthesia in general medicine at King's and St Thomas's. And then uh, as I, during post, the final stages of postgraduate training, I decided uh, that I didn't want to become a consultant anaesthetist. I didn't have the the kind of personality that I think an anaesthetist need to have. We have to be very stoic. Uh, I'm particularly anxious and neurotic sometimes, and that's not the best combination um, to to work in, in, in at that level in, in, in emergency medicine and surgery. Um, so I changed. Uh, I qualified in general practice, but I, to be honest, I didn't enjoy general practice. Uh, I enjoyed the more academic side of life, so I turned back to science and pharmacology and therapeutics, and then I went into into the pharmaceutical industry in clinical research and development, where I was for many years. Uh, I worked for Big Pharma and ended up as the uh, <clears throat> in that state in that part of my career as the medical director for Europe for Procter and Gamble, um, which was quite wide-ranging both in terms of products I I was concerned with as regards their safety and efficacy, both uh, life science products, um, pharmaceutics, medical devices, uh, but more importantly the, uh, the broad range of consumer products, over-the-counter medicines, and then the, uh, the chemical and paper side. So that was a very interesting managerial job. Um, I, I, I left that in, in my late, mid to late 50s and uh, I joined the, um, the MHRA, the Medicines and Healthcare Regulatory Agency in the UK on the Secretariat of the Committee on Safety of Medicines as it was then and uh, I became a regulator mm. for um, <clears throat> really the last third of my formal career. Um, and I joined, enjoyed that enormously. I'd been developed in the, I'd been uh, in the industry working on, predominantly on cardiovascular and anaesthetic drugs and psychoactive drugs, and I carried that on within the MHRA and was uh, uh, an assessor for safety and efficacy of new medicines, particularly in the anaesthetics and cardiovascular field. Mm. Uh, I also worked on medical devices, um, but during that time 
Um, almost, I shouldn't say as a hobby, I, um, I became very interested in law because I'd always been interested in the legal framework of regulation. Uh, so with the agreement of the agency, I, I decided not to change career, but to complement my knowledge. Um, and I, I took a part-time law degree, LLB degree, mm. partly because uh, I was academically interested, but also because my, uh, my parents were, um, were Jewish refugees from, um, from Vienna. Uh, they escaped the Nazis and um, they never recovered from that. My father had been a lawyer um, and I just took on, I think, subconsciously where mm. he had left off and mm. uh, so I was particularly interested in that, in that um, aspect of life and uh, I ended up with a degree and then I decided to um, do the bar finals, the bar exams. Uh, they came on as a part-time option and uh, when I qualified, I, I really didn't expect to practice in any way. Mm. Uh, in fact, in one anecdote, a couple of uh, friends of mine who um, were actually high court judges took me out for lunch before, just before bar finals and pinned me up against the wall in Middle Temple and told me, Peter, this is ridiculous. You're, uh, you're uh, nearly 60 now. Uh, you don't qualify in law when you're 60. It's sim it, it simply won't work. You'll, you're, you're not going to qualify. You'll certainly never get pupillage. And if you get pupillage, you certainly won't get tenancy. Uh, and uh, if, if you do end up in tenancy, uh, any solicitor in his right mind would not employ you. So uh, give it up now before you do any more damage to yourself and your family. And did you prove them wrong? I proved them, I proven them wrong. Um, I don't know how it happened, but I did end up in pupillage and then in tenancy. And uh, to my amazement, um, solicitors still still do instruct me. And uh, so for the last uh, uh, 17, 18 years, it's been the, I, I wouldn't say the final stages of my career, but, um, but I do have a practice. It's primarily an advisory practice. Mm. I don't go into court that much these days. Um, but I do advise solicitors and other counsel who are preparing litigation, preparing cases. Mm. So I do get involved in some very, very interesting work. And mm. um, uh, hopefully we'll talk about some of those um, a bit later on. But yeah, you, your career, I say career, but I mean, you've obviously had sort of three main stems to your career, medicine, sort of big pharma, and then law at the end. And you, you, you mentioned that your, your, your dad was a lawyer and you, you always sort of had an interest in law, but... What made you decide to go down the, the, the medicine route to, to begin with? Well, it was, I, I felt it was pragmatic. I was very interested in law, very interested in the practicalities of law. But I realised that I needed to take advantage of whatever skills I had. Mm. And of course, my medical skills are quite wide ranging mm. as a, as a, in pharmacology and therapeutics and regulation. Uh, you cover a huge swathes of, uh, of medical areas. And there, I, I could see there were practical legal issues in many of that. Mm. So I decided to capitalise on that. Mm. And uh, I think at the back of my mind, if I was going to be any use, of any use in law, mm. rather than start at the beginning, very beginning at the age of sixty, that was a bit silly. I had to, I had yeah. to use whatever experience I had, and that's been, I think, looking back, that's been quite. Uh, 
practical and yeah. reasonably successful. Yeah, yeah. Sort of going back, we'll go sort of to, to, to the beginning of your career. What, what was it like doing medicine uh, in those days? In those days, yeah. I think it's very different from now. I, I I don't know much about the undergraduate curriculum now, but in my days it was very traditional. Uh, at King's, certainly, we had a uh, an academic two years taking second MB, mm-hmm. where you learnt the basics anatomy and physiology, and pharmacology. Um, very little psychology, very little social sciences, and I mm. think looking back, that was probably mm. the wrong. Yeah, uh, that was. And, the, and now we we have quite and a now, lot of, of, now, of social science. And now the balance has gone the other way. Yeah. You look much more carefully at the way that you interact personally mm. with patients, mm. uh, but we, that was left to us to learn mm. on the job, as it were. We had very limited clinical content in those first couple of years. It was really very. Th- um, um, very rigid. It was like mm. school. It was called mm. medical school, and it, mm. well, it was mm. a school. Um, looking back, the most important part of our education, I think, was anatomy. Um, mm. I think we, we um, and I, I don't know how you do that these days, but we had a very significant uh, dissection classes. Mm. I think mm. something like at least a third of your week was taken oh, yeah. on yeah. practical dissection. Mm. And that spread out, at least at King's, it spread out not to look at the anatomic structure, it was function as well. Mm. So we both, mm. they didn't call it integration with physiology, but it was effectively. Mm. Mm. And I think that uh, that stood us in very, very great stead later on in our, mm. in our career. And I think it still does. Mm. Um, and so, so after medical school, you would then do, I mean, what would be equivalent to the foundation post now with your... Um, yes, after medical, so after finals, um, well, we, we had electives. I, mm. I mean, in my last year, I did do an elective in Canada oh, for yeah. six months, yeah. paediatrics yeah. and anaesthesia. Yeah. And, uh, and then it was house jobs, six-month house jobs. Mm. Um, very competitive to get, to get house jobs. Um, um, but it was very... Um, you were effectively an apprentice yeah. to, to the boss, to mm. the firm. And uh, you were lucky or unlucky, depending who your firm was. Mm, mm. I won't mention names, but I had to, I had two good house jobs, a good general surgery job, down in um, in uh, Tunbridge Wells, and uh, a very good, supposed to be a prestigious job, in the UK at Kings in in the, in the liver unit. Mm. Um, very very pressurised indeed. You were expected to be on duty for for six months effectively. There was mm. no no time off, no overtime, mm. none of this kind of yeah. modern day thinking now, mm. and you were you were just knackered all the time. Mm. But looking back on this, it was a it was a good training. Yeah, learning curve. It was a very good learning curve yeah. and a very good training. Mm. So you you as you said earlier moved into anaesthetics, decided that wasn't for you. Uh, tr- tried a career in general practice as well. I tried a career in general practice in those days you didn't have to do formal vocational training. Mm. You could do a year and get signed off as a general practitioner. Mm. Looking back at it now, that was that was pretty crude. Mm. I think you don't think you can learn the, the range mm. of, of medicine that you have to have for, at your fingertips as a GP. Um, and also I discovered, I'm, I hate to say this, I didn't enjoy the patient contact. Mm. On the one hand, I didn't enjoy the non-patient contact that one had as an anaesthetist. Mm. All I had was a generalised anxiety. But you know, 
would we be okay in you know in a hospital uh, anaesthetizing for an appendicectomy in the middle of the night in Camberwell with nobody else in the hospital mm. that mm. was terrifying yeah <laughs> and at the same time I just got terribly frustrated with a, lo a lot of the um, a lot of the complaints that you saw in in in, in general practice mm. Mm. Um, so maybe I was just going through a general phase and not need to know what, what I was going to mm, do. Mm. Uh, so some friends asked me to um, to join join a research team actually at Guy's in pharmacology, mm. and six months after I did that, again on cardiovascular drugs, drugs. Mm. Um, after I did that, almost as a sort of uh, uh, a holiday from from general practice, I was approached by industry, and said would I like to go into clinical research. Mm. Um, which I, with some trepidation I good I did yeah I did it but um, but I enjoyed that as yeah uh, that very much do, do you think you I mean you mentioned the patient contact there do you think you missed the or missed the patient contact from your initial career or, or were you actually you were so interested in in the, the think, academic yeah, side of things I think that, I was so interested in yeah, the academic yeah. side I didn't really miss the patient contact yeah it was a bit of a relief quite honestly <laughs> <laughs> from the GP from the GP yeah, that's yeah. right which is just stark opposite uh, which is that's a good way of putting it and yeah. um, and and so I I stayed in uh, industry and mm. gradually went up the ladder mm. Mm. Um, and I learned skills that I hadn't done before particularly looking at the commercialization process mm. and the management process and I was never marvelous at that mm. by any means but but um, but it was an interesting mm. Mm. And, and what would you what sort of person do you have to be to go into to yeah. f to big pharma and, and those sort of areas and to, academia? Th there's no stereotype. Mm. Um, I think on the on the uh, on the scientific front, the clinical development side, even the, the scientific development side, generally it depends what what type of business you want to go into. If you go into small medium enterprise and biotech companies, which are the, the mainstay of innovative mm. medicine. Mm. Um, it's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Mm. But there are people around, like like any population, you have a spread of interests. Mm. People who want a more commercial career, yeah, and people change as well. They develop from basic nerdy clinical scientists into some people who become very very good commercial marketeers and mm. sales guys. It's, mm. So it's, I mean, it's a it's a completely different range of skills to completely to, different to range of skills, in, in completely different range of yeah. skills to medicine. Yeah. yeah, but always you have to have that fundamental respect for medical ethics. Mm. That's very important. Mm. Uh, if you if you don't have that baseline, things can go very very badly wrong, mm. badly wrong indeed. Mm. Um, but I don't want to sermonise on that at all. Yeah. No, no. Did you work on on any interesting sort of drugs and and certain areas in pharmacology? What whilst you whilst you yes we we um, we cardiovascular work. It's 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 not a drug that's well known now, but labetalol trandate, which was a, an alpha beta blocker. Mm. I mean, it is used, and we have several, but we we, mm. we developed yeah. that at Glaxo. Glaxo was a very when Glaxo was Glaxo before it became Welcome or Glaxo Smith Clyde. Or Glaxo Beecham, it was Glaxo and Alan Hanbury's. So on the one hand, there was a most wonderful research director called David Jack, um, who became a, an FRS actually, and there was a group of really brilliant scientists, pharmacologists, 
in, in, in my day. They, and they, they ruled the laboratories and the research division with a rod of iron, um, which some people criticise, but they made immense contributions to medicine. And this is something that the, that the pharmaceutical industry, the top range of the pharmaceutical industry, do not just well, but do a brilliant mm -hmm. contribution. Um, mm. And they did. They looked at uh, asthma, respiratory diseases, um, hypertension. Levetolol was a major thing. Mm. And then, of and course, still we used to use exactly. And then we came on. They went on to the gastrointestinal work, mm. Zantac and Ritidine and Meprazole. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So that was pretty fascinating. It was very basic, small, small molecule pharmacology. Mm. Um, those were before the days of. Um, macromolecules and bioengineering that, mm, mm. that that whole vision has changed now yeah but it is fascinating yeah and what's fascinating to me at the moment is that in my legal work i come back into contact mm. with all that work mm. in innovative medicines mm. Mm. i mean people uh, criticize the sort of big pharma for the profiteering and things yeah. like that but i mean uh, the, the other side of that of course is that's how innovations are made i mean what's your sort of feel on, on big pharma and um, yes, Big Pharma is, has got this uh, reputation as the big bad beast. Um, I don't think it's the innovative side. I think that the costs of developing drugs are, are genuinely just enormous. Mm. Uh, to do phase three clinical trials up to the point where you get an appropriate benefit-risk evaluation, mm. you're, you're looking at what... 10, 12 years, mm. very big studies, very, very expensive studies, certainly with innovative medicines. And um, that is both costly and timely as well. And from a commercial perspective, Big Pharma justifiably has to look at what its return on investment is going to be. And given the fact that the intellectual pr protection, intellectual property protection is only 20 years mm. from the date of start of disclosure, yeah. Um, development of a drug will take what ten to fifteen years. So you've used up fifteen years of your patent life, mm -hmm. and you only can mm -hmm. make a profit on the last five years, or with a bit of um, tweaking, maybe seven years or eight years, mm -hmm. depending on supplementary patent certificates changes in patentability, changes in formulations. Mm. And it's at that stage that the kind of game playing comes in. Mm. Um, so that, that is justifiable. What isn't justifiable, where I think that many companies, big companies, are becoming increasingly wrong in the way they're doing this, is in competition or where they're deliberately manipulating prices. Mm. And we're starting to see that mm. now. And both the European authorities and the UK authorities are hammering down on that quite justifiably. Mm, mm, That's mm. where the profiteering comes in. And you see companies which haven't invested at all in the development of drugs, they're yeah. taking generic drugs and then artificially manipulating the market. Uh, mm. And I'm deeply, deeply opposed mm, mm. To, to that. Mm. I mean, that brings us on to the, the next sort of stage of your career from, from that, which is in regulation. I mean, how how did you get into the, into that, and, and what sort of bits of of regula regulation yeah. and things did you enjoy? How did I get again? As with me, it was never a planned thing. 
um, on my 55th birthday, I was the European medical director for, for Procter & Gamble. Um, and um, I've reached the stage where people are thrown out of companies. I mean, you do, you, you, you end, you have a natural lifespan mm. as a senior manager. There was a knock on the door on my 55th birthday, actually, uh, from the vice president of Europe, um, who said, uh, look, we're, we're globalizing the company. We want you and your family to move to Cincinnati, which is a nice way of saying goodbye. Um, and we talked at home and uh, there was no way I was going to mm. move family with my girls, you know, about to start A-levels and what have you. And I didn't want to go to Cincinnati. Lovely place, though it is. Uh, but it was a nice way of them saying goodbye. So I left. Uh, then I, I was approached, actually, by, um, and I must say this, by one of the great men of medicine. I don't know whether you've ever heard of Alistair Breckenridge. Mm. And he phoned me up and said, Pete, we're looking for medical assessors mm. at, uh, at the CSM. Would you like to come? And um, at that time, the CSM, the MHRA, which used to be called the Medicines Control Agency, mm -hmm. just about become the MH, it was a very academic institution. And after all, this was the institution that had first uh, really devoted academic focus to safety and efficacy of medicines. Um, you know, it was the thalidomide area, or the post-thalidomide mm -hmm. area. Mm -hmm. And it was absolutely fascinating. It was much more of a university than it was a, uh, a straightforward civil service bureaucratic mm. regular. And, and I, I, from my perspective, it was fascinating because you sat at this, the Committee on Safety of Medicine's table and you saw the whole panoply of medicine mm. come before your eyes with the greatest experts um, from around the UK mm. and subsequently the European Union mm. um, giving opinions on the basic pharmacology. So that was absolutely fascinating. Mm. You had to you had to understand the basic science. You saw how the, how that was uh, developed into practical usage into drugs and so on, mm. um, and all the pharmacology and the pharmacy technology that came into that. Mm. And this was just at the time when um, molecular biology was rearing its head. So we began to see the small molecules, yeah. but we also used to see. You know, the beginning of monoclonal antibodies and so on coming mm, mm. and huge but bursting of scientific innovation yeah. and that was a fascinating thing mm. and you're slowly creeping towards law uh, in this time at that time yes and now I'd always thought when I left Procter & Gamble in fact it started the year before I left Procter & Gamble I became more and more interested in law because of the work I've been doing in industry. Mm. So I did a part-time law degree. Yeah. And uh, the MHRA actually um, supported that. Mm. Mm. They thought this was great, that they could have some expertise, yeah. somebody yeah. who would understand the, the, the legal mm. arrangements. Mm. So I did a part-time law degree. Um, anyway, yeah. I, I, I did what was necessary. I scraped through a law degree. Yeah. I don't think I really understood it. I was interested, but I... I didn't, certainly didn't have the time mm. to devote to it mm. that I should have had in order to get the kind of degree that one, one should get. Anyway, I got my LLB. You join the inn, which I did, and uh, you do the bar finals, which is, uh, again, a postgraduate course. Mm. It was a couple of years postgraduate. 
mm. which I did in London, and then I, uh, and I qualified as a barrister. I called, I was called, a, called in the inn, called to Middle Temple, um, which is a lovely ceremony. It's actually a degree ceremony, mm. and uh, I had no intention of practicing. Um, but then something strange happened, uh, and it's worth telling the story. I was phoned up by um, a girl who I didn't know at the time, was a barrister at Four New Square, um, one of the inns of court, and she said, uh, I've just been handed this case and it's, a, it's an action in negligence against the Committee on Safety of Medicines, and uh, we don't know what the hell to do with this, we don't understand the case, but I understand that you've got some rudimentary knowledge of medicine, uh, can we talk to you about it and some rudimentary knowledge of law? And uh, uh, Leanne said, uh, can we talk? And it was a very interesting case. It was actually the first case in negligence against the Committee on Safety of Medicines. And what had happened was that uh, you've heard of Rye syndrome, presumably. Mm. This is when you give... It's aspirin. Aspirin is the main one. I think, I'm not sure whether it's happened with ibuprofen, but aspirin to a, to a febrile child. Yeah. And uh, what had happened was that some three years previously, the FDA had promulgated a warning saying that aspirin shouldn't be given to children with fever. Um, and the CSM had, this was years and years earlier, before I joined CSM, had, had prevaricated about this. They, th they said that causality hadn't been established, mm. so they delayed and delayed mm. before changing the summary of product characteristics of aspirin. Mm. Um, and there was a lot of documents that then repeatedly looked at this issue, but had delayed and decided not to promulgate a warning. And tragically, a little Amanda Smith um, um, and this must have been what 20, 20 years previously or so had been given aspirin mm. uh, and it developed this chemical meningitis damaged her for life and subsequently three weeks later after she'd been given the aspirin CSM issued a warning right. that Riot syndrome was a, was a potential and this poor child had been damaged for life. So the mother, 20 years later, came back and said, why can't I sue in negligence mm. against the Committee on Safety and Medicines? And this was a very, very interesting legal issue. Um, so she sued, the wife and big sisters in, 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 in London, and uh, it landed on the desk of the head of chambers of Four New Square, um, because he, Chambers, was one of the preferred suppliers to the government, on the government list. Mm. So the government solicitors had uh, instructed uh, Four New Square to take this case on to defend the Committee on Safety and Medicines. Um, it went through the QC and a couple of his juniors, who apparently, so the anecdote says, opened the files and just burst into tears because they didn't understand what on earth was happening here. You know? And they, somehow they'd heard of my name. So purely serendipitously, I was mm -hmm. invited in for a cup of tea 
and I looked at these files. It happened years before. There was no conflict of interest, mm. and, and and I described the medicine of what had happened. Mm. You know, this was, you know, a type B reaction. You didn't really understand. Nobody understood. Mm. We still don't understand the, the causality. But looking at the chronology of it, all the clinical signs were there. They should have been, and they should have come to a decision. However, there's a big argument about causality, huge argument, which there still is. Mm. And uh, so I helped them put the case together, and that was the first case that I was pulled into. Mm. And um, we we actually won. We defended the government. It was a very very typed very, very I think it was a very important judgment um, that the judge did say at the end of it that uh, that at least the committee on safety of medicines government bodies could be sued in negligence but mm. in this particular case he found against us mm, mm, mm. and against the the claimant found against Amanda Smith and her mother um, but it was a very interesting it's a seminal case mm. and uh, we worked like crackers on that for about six months. Mm. Six months to get put the case together, and uh, um, and then a few weeks later, I was phoned by the head of chambers and said, "Listen, you call yourself a barrister. Why don't you come and be one?" Mm. And, uh, you proved you proved yourself, I suppose. I think, uh, purely by chance, he, yeah. well, he saw there was some potential. There. Yeah, um, and uh, and that's what happened. And since then, you've worked on other sort of fairly high-profile cases. I, and, I work and on high-profile I, 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 I can't tell you too much because a lot of it hasn't gone to court yet mm. and isn't public. Mm. Um, although things like Mesh and Valkyrie, which I have worked on, um, are, are part and parcel of the Cumberland report, which came out recently. Mm. But these are... I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to be instructed by solicitors or by people who want to understand the medical aspects as they're translated into law. How do you, uh, how do you negotiate um, the, the ethical standards of law yeah. versus, you know... It's a very, very good question, um, because there is a difference between the... As a doctor, and I say, I'm still a registered doctor, you work to the GMC code of practice, which the is generally focused on what you doing is best for the patient the patient takes overarching importance mm. whereas in law the bar standards board which is the the governing body of practice of law mm. of barristers anyway um is you, you do the best for your client and very often in medical law your client may be a claimant um, against the GMC or a defendant against accusations of negligence. Either way, you've got to do the best for that client, um, which may actually counter what may be the best for the patient. Uh, so, for instance, if there's a case against, um, against the safe use of a drug, and this is called product's liability in law, where a drug may or a device such as vaginal mess may may be defective in terms of its safe use mm. for particular patients. Mm. In law, theoretically, you have to do the best for the client. You have to defend yeah. the client's use. Yeah. 
and and that and that could rise that could give rise to you know a, a conflict of interest mm. i resolve it by saying that if in my medical opinion it looks as though the merits of the claim against a manufacturer for instance well i'm telling i, I shouldn't tell you confidential things, but if i were to be asked mm. about the safe use of a pro of product x and I think that medically there's sufficient evidence to say that the product is not safe mm. in legal terms. I will say so to the client and I will either accuse myself from the case mm. or hope that the client agrees with me mm. you know, and withdraws his accusation. Because you're in a very tricky situation. Very tricky I mean, situation. You have a medical background, you, you were a regulator of these products Correct. And, and, and now you may be defending something that... Or be asked to defend something which I think is egregious. Yeah. In which case, I will, will do exactly that. I've done that. Mm. It's not commercially the most um, sensitive, sensible but thing. To that's do. how it sits right with you. I yeah, mean, it's, it's morally. Something that I can't do. Yeah, it yeah. has to. Mm. It has mm. to. Mm. What do you think is harder, a medical degree or a law degree? Two very different things. Um, I suspect a law degree is harder because you don't have the practical experience to back it up. Whereas as a medical degree, you're now exposed mm. to the practical consequences of your theoretical knowledge. Mm. And that reinforces what you're, you're sure. learning and understanding. Mm. Whereas a law, in law, for instance, I, it, was, it was a dreadful course, uh, which I didn't do marvellously in. Um, you you spend two hours of an evening learning civil procedure rules. It's almost like learning by rote. By mm -hmm. You know, rules 33.1, exemption 33.1, mm. paragraph G, but it's a load of bloody nonsense. Mm. Um, but that that is your entree into the profession. You have to do mm. that. Mm. So you're learning it by rote. Mm. It's a terrible thing to do. Now, probably in my day, as the grumpy old man, when we did the, um, I don't know, venous drainage of the arm, for instance, or of the leg, or in fact anywhere, <laughs> you had to learn it by rote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, that, was the, that was the nearest analogy. Yeah, yeah. So the law degree is like the worst bits of a medical degree. That's a good way of putting it. You, know, you distill down the really bad <laughs> the bits really of boring medical, bits. The really boring bits and then do law. Yeah. The crackers <laughs> don't touch it. That's right. What what type of person do you think it, it takes to, to go into medical law? I mean I medical saying. it's impossible to say. We we there are a lot of forgive me if I'm a bit cynical about this, there are a lot of medics who halfway up there I don't know what well, not not your foundation year one or in the next year specialty training mm, isn't it? Mm, core training and core training yeah, I think yeah. suddenly realize um, you know after four or five years god this is terribly competitive I've always wanted to be a general surgeon um, but somehow it really is not going to manage and I don't really want to go into I don't know, ENT or whatever it is. Mm. So I'll do law instead. And I know several people like this. Mm. Um, and they fail at it. They don't do well. But anyway, to, to go back to what we were saying about 
should medics do law? The answer is yes, if you have got the relative experience um, to know and really be passionate about what the legal consequences are, the legal issues are, mm. legal and ethical issues are in medicine. Because primarily, I think, as a medic, once a medic, you're always a medic. Mm. You can't just switch off and, and change. I mean, yes, I, 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 I don't, uh, I don't deal with patients, but the consequences I do, in terms of regulation, public health, or the opinions I give on therapeutics, mm. have got medical mm. consequences, mm. and uh, you on 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 a, on a massive scale, mm. and the same in law. You you are. You're, you're working on the rule of law as it applies to medicine, but that's important. So you have to inject your own, it sounds a bit pompous, but your own passion mm, into mm, that. Mm, mm. So there's no easy answer to that one. Passionate? Yes, a real, real interest, real deep interest mm. into what you're doing. I know you're doing things with coronavirus. Can you mention anything about that but, today? At the beginning of lockdown, I thought that's the end of it. My my career's finished. I've had a good few years. I'm seventy seven. It's it's ridiculous now what's carrying on. Uh, career's just going to vanish, and we won't be going into meetings in chambers anyway. Mm. To my amazement, I've been busier than ever, and <laughs> I, I'm I'm asked a lot about all aspects of coronavirus. Two two big common topics. One is corona virus and the other is cannabis mm. or controlled drugs um, coronavirus uh, I've been asked to advise on development of life science products particularly related to coronavirus mm. and that the, the legal issues are very complex there, there's legal issues about regulation of PPE and um, medical devices uh, legal issues on testing particularly the validity of testing whether medical device regulations have been are appropriate mm. for some of the testing that's going on whether people have made investments which are not properly regulatory um, uh, and uh, a little bit of on, on vaccines but not that much mm. Mm. Um, so that's a very very interesting work mm. indeed mm. Um, and of course there's some of the newer drugs they're pushing through vaccine development for coronavirus yes, and, and things they like are, that yeah and accelerating vaccine yeah. I don't know how successful that's going to be in its own. We'll have to wait and see. You have to wait and see yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, what they are doing is taking a gamble on two lines of testing now, mm. um, phase one and phase two testing, which are small, mm. um, a safety and proof of concept, proof of mechanism of action. Mm. And then the bigger um, clinical eff efficacy effectiveness studies, the mm. phase three studies, mm. um, normally you do that in sequence so that you've got a good rationale that there is sufficiently powerful, robust results to ensure that there's safety mm. in the in the phase three studies. Yeah. Or not ensure, but give you as, as much a, a handle as possible. But they're doing both in parallel now. And that is, that's accelerated development. Yeah. And that's fine, but it's going to be very careful indeed. Mm. Mm. And, and the other thing you mentioned was cannabis use. Yeah, that's, that's another long-standing thing, though. 
<coughs> that's the development of cannabis as cannabis-based medicinal products. Yeah, and there's lots in the in the media last year, I think. Lots in the media last year, and there's beginning to be lots in the media here because there there are cannabis-based derivatives, mm. both cannabinoids and other terpenes, which do have a reasonable degree of efficacy mm. in in things like refract um, efficacy in refractory seizures and things. Seizures, and, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. Um, the definitive studies in the paradigm that we think of as regulators haven't yet been done, mm. and that these there's a there's a mess around the the level of control, what schedules they are in the controlled drugs regulations, right. and. Um, so these medical they've been designated as CBDMs, as cannabis-based medicinal products, mm. um, and they can be given, prescribed, uh, by specialist physicians. But it's done yeah. as a special, on physicians' own responsibility. Yeah. So. Uh, so it's uh, very. It must be a very. It's a. It's a tricky. It's tricky because you have lots of media interest in it, uh, and a lots of push for it to be used clinically in, right. in these in these children which and, it, and if they are if they are um if they do have efficacy and that they they are working then that's a great thing but then you also have regulation and the legal side of things yeah, and it depends is whether you believe the anecdotes that they're working mm. um and now the the lennox epilepsy cases they're very rare mm. um and of course there are mothers parents who swear by them but the the level of clinical data mm is not at the standard mm. that CSM would normally want and that's the big difficulty yeah what is what is the level of difficulty of, of, of level of effectiveness and credibility against what may be anecdotal data mm. and and there are physicians who say yes this is great and others who say there's not that level of data you don't know the addictive potential of some of these drugs and so on mm. it's mm. it's a very very difficult yeah judgment to make mm. Mm. Um, i don't know what i don't think it's an easy answer with this one mm. 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 well i think that is all our questions is that helpful very helpful thank you very much for, for joining us on the podcast pleasure Thank you again for listening. If this is the first time you've listened to the podcast and you want to hear more from us, then please do consider subscribing. Failing that, if you want to find out more about what Geeky Medics do and the other cool stuff the team get up to, then you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. As ever, thank you to the producers of the podcast, Alice Appleton and Lewis Potter.